Hey guys, this is Dom with the Logos Project. Welcome to part three in the Mary series. I strongly recommend you guys follow along with the Bible to make all the connections I'm making. And uh, without further ado, enjoy. Okay, so now we're at part three. I want to take a look. Let's see at my notes here. Okay. So in the last episode, we talked about John is writing a new creation narrative where there's a succession of six days with all the elements uh, that we mentioned, such as the light and the darkness, the water and the spirits, uh, the new Adam as the uh, son of the father. And there's a wedding on the sixth day where Jesus is there with his mother and he calls her woman, which reminds us of man and woman from Genesis, Ish and Isha. And so it's interesting that the author of John is also the author of Revelation, or if not, they're at least both part of a, the what we call the Johannine tradition and also the epistles of John, 1, 2, and 3 John. So what we have here is a common origin for these um, writings. And uh, what is one of the most prominent themes, especially in Revelation 12, is the woman clothed with the sun with a crown on her head and giving birth to a messiah, to a king. So, in other words, a queen mother. Now, the fact that, you know, she's described as the woman and she's called woman here also ties into something I wanted to bring up, which is uh, in Luke 1, the angel appears to, to Mary, the angel Gabriel, and says... Hail, full of grace. So he greets her and he says, Kyrie, right? Now the word Kyrie in Greek is the same word used when the the Romans are beating Jesus after he's crowned with thorns and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. So remember we talked about Pilate saying, Behold the man. Jesus is basically being the opposite of Adam who grasped at, right? Think of Philippians 2, grasped at the fruit in order to be God. Jesus is the fruit that is being placed back on the tree who is God and becoming man, obedient unto death. So we have this paradox where everything is being reversed and the obedience of Jesus undoes the disobedience of Adam. Well, what's interesting is that Irenaeus tells us in the second century that also the obedience of Mary undoes the disobedience of Eve, which is why when the angel appears to Mary, he says, Hail, Kyrie, just like the Oroman said, Hail to Jesus. Also, Pilate says, Behold the man, but also at the cross, Jesus says, Behold your mother, to John. So we have these clear parallels here where um, Jesus is the new Adam that is truly God through his obedience. But Adam, right, when God says in Genesis, you know, behold the man who is becoming like one of us, knowing the knowledge of good and evil. But then Adam calls in verse 22 of Genesis 3, uh, he calls Eve, Eve, which means mother of all the living. And then we have in John 19, Jesus calling Mary the mother of John. So behold your mother, and John is the beloved disciple. Now we find out in Revelation 12, that Mary is also, well, Mary, the woman in the sky, right? The woman in the heavens is, uh, doesn't just give birth to the child who rules the nations with a rod of iron, but also to all those who believe, all the believers, the beloved disciples, you might say. Now in Luke 1, we have the angel greeting her, Hail Kyrie, and he calls her Kikaritomene in Greek, which is a, a strange word, which basically, if I were to translate it, would mean 
a woman who has been perfectly graced. So graced one, or she who in the past has been perfected in grace. In other words, he's not saying, Hail Mary, you're graced by God. He's saying, Hail, she who is graced. It's a title, basically, right? Kyrie, kikaritomene. And so that's important because the angel goes on to enumerate several things about her son. The angel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then the angel says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, these aren't just random statements of the angel Gabriel. They're references to Second Samuel 7 which God tells David in verse 12 of Second Samuel 7, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, right, the son of David, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Right, so Solomon builds a house for the name of God. But what's interesting here is that Jesus also builds a house, right? What house? Uh, the church, a new temple where heaven and earth meet. He shall build a house for for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So he will be the son of the father, the son of God, a new Adam, right? And then it keeps going. Verse 16 says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so we go back to the words of the angel. It says he will be great, and he'll be son of the Most High, so son of God, right? And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, which was mentioned in Second Samuel, the throne of David. And then verse 33 of Luke 1 says, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end, which is exactly what Second Samuel 7 verse 16 says. So in other words, the seed of the woman here is going to be the son of David, the new Davidic king, who is also the new Adam. And so Mary is greeted with, you know, hail and a title by the angel, which means that she's the mother of that Davidic king, who, as we saw, was described by Pilate as the man, behold the man. And so we have the Davidic and Adamic themes in Jesus. We also have the Davidic mother right, the mother of the king from the story of Bathsheba having a throne, uh, which ties into Revelation 12, the woman giving birth to the child, but she has a crown of 12 stars, who is now being greeted by the angel as hail she who is graced perfectly. And so we'll have to do a section just on the word kikaritomene. It's quite uh, quite a fascinating word. It's uh, what we call hapax legomenon in Greek, which means uh, a made-up word uh, used only once. Like, you don't really see it. It's, it's purposefully made up for the narrative by Luke. He literally just came up with it. Now it has an actual root, right? He took it from the word charis, then made it like a, a participle, and it's vocative, and um, uh, it's uh, a perfect tense, which means it's a completed act in the past. It's a really interesting word. Um, so uh, what's interesting here, we have this, basically the new Davidic king and his new mother are also the new Adam and Eve, basically, is what we're getting from this. And he's the new man that is beheld, and uh, she is the new mother, right, when, when Jesus says, behold your mother. And that mother of what? Of the kingdom, right, which is uh, of the disciples, the beloved disciples, as we see in Revelation 12, the mother not just of the child with the rod of iron, but also of all those who believe in the child, as Revelation 12 says. Actually, let me go ahead and pull that up. Uh, I think that would be helpful. So, 
Okay, so Revelation 12, verse 17 says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Okay, now what I find interesting, and this is kind of an aside, I just thought it was cool, that the Gospel of John is seen, uh, is represented oftentimes by an eagle, uh, just like the Gospel of Matthew by an angel. The point being is that the Gospel of John is presented by an eagle because it's considered to be the most spiritual of the Gospels. And this is a tradition that's been held for a very long time, and you even have depictions of this tradition but as i said this is an aside it just it's interesting that it says in verse 14 of revelation 12 it says but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time uh you could connect that you know to john 19 where jesus gives his mother to john the disciple uh, who is the author of both of these texts to take care of her but I don't know. That's something that I've heard. I I don't really put too much stock into that. I think it's a cool thought. Um, So that being said, so we clearly see that the woman is the mother of the child with uh, the rod of iron, but also of those who keep the commandments of God. And she's given birth to the child with the rod of iron, who's the new Adam and the new Davidic king. She's the new Eve and the new queen mother, who is described as, Behold your mother, Right, mother of all the living like Eve, but mother of all the new creation living, if that makes sense. So if read, if John is read in light of its new creation theme, which means that it's drawing from Genesis, and you tie all these things together in light of what happened at the Annunciation, it's hard to not see these themes. And so what I find interesting, and this is another aside before we keep going on John 19, what I find interesting is... There's some great scholars who spend a lot of time on very meticulous passages, oftentimes in Paul, and who come to these beautiful conclusions. And, for example, N.T. Wright sees this amazing Exodus narrative in the backdrop of the letter to the Romans. He has a really good argument for it, and and I buy it. I remember he was in a—it wasn't a debate. It was a discussion, but it kind of became a debate, and someone was— skeptical about N.T. Wright's reading of the Exodus narrative in the background of Romans. And uh, what I find really cool is that the guy said to N.T. Wright, well, why can't it just be, you know, what Paul is saying on the surface? Like, why do you have to read into it all these typological backstories? And N.T. Wright said, it's not bold enough. <laughs> and, I, and I love that answer, right? You, When it comes to Scripture, you're talking about really what Jordan Peterson would call the world of the dream, right? Which is the archetypal imagery that is at home with religious experience, basically expressing itself, especially in the first century where everything is so explosive and you have people on fire for something that just happened that they can't explain. And so the religious, you know, just bursts out of these authors and these archetypal dreamlike ideas are coming forth and and to just say oh no paul is simply talking about baptism then the law and then the spirit 
as opposed to, no, baptism is the crossing of the Red Sea. The law is when you receive it from Sinai. And then the Spirit is the one who leads like the pillar of fire through the wilderness and then culminates in the new creation. And Romans 8 is all about the new creation and us being sons and daughters of God. And like, how can you not see the new Exodus there? Like, you have to be bold in your interpretation. Now, you have to be cautious, right? But everything I've said so far about understanding Jesus as the new Adam and Mary as the new Eve, Jesus as the new Davidic king and Mary as the new queen mother, it, it's it's much less bold than so many other interpretations that are just accepted without any question. And so going back to what I was saying is that there's amazing exegesis being done on these different areas in Scripture, but the moment it has to do with the Lord's Supper or with the, the Virgin Mary like no one wants to touch that and i i think that in itself is definitely a factor that needs to be taken into account why are people so reticent to touch those areas i think it's because i mean i think i know why it's because you know the conclusions if you are consistent are that christ when he instituted the eucharist the imagery there and we talked about this by reading colossians and hebrews right the idea that the shadows are pointing to the fullness of the eschatological realities, which are the templates, the blueprints. And I think that people who are interpreting the scriptures in that beautiful way that I mentioned earlier, like N.T. Wright, they might know, maybe not explicitly, that if they approach those specific areas, the blueprint and the full eschatological reality is much more glorious than the shadows. And that could be a problem if you... Uh, have issues with uh, with Mary as the new Eve and the Eucharist as the true presence of Christ. So, so that's something that's worth thinking about. Okay, so moving on to John 19. Okay, so again, we talked about verse 5 of John 19 where Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And then uh, verse 6, the chief priests and the officers uh, shout out, uh, it says, They cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And then Pilate said to them, I find no guilt in him, which is interesting, right? Because the man that is guiltless versus the Adam who introduced guilt into the world. Paul talks about this in Romans 5, which is through one man sin entered into the world. But Jesus has the new Adam. Uh, through him, righteousness and grace enter the world. So in verse 7 it says, we're in John 19, remember, verse 7 says the Jews answered him we have a law and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the son of god so when pilate hears that he's worried why what does that term represent to pilate son of god is what they called augustus caesar because the roman republic fell with julius caesar's death but when Julius Caesar died, he was declared after he died to be a god. So when the new empire was ushered in and Augustus became the first Roman emperor of the new empire, he was called Divi Filius, the son of God, right? Because his father, his adoptive father was Caesar. Now adoption for Romans is not what it was for us now. You truly did become a son of the person who adopted you. The idea here is that this is a threat. So the high priests know it. And they're like, okay, if we say this to Pilate, it's going to make him annoyed. So verse 8 says when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. 
Now, I do think here John is playing with the Genesis narrative because after Adam tries to be a god, right, and he sins, and then he realizes he's naked and he's afraid. Now, I'm not going to put too much stock in that interpretation. I just think it might be a reference to Genesis, but it's it's irrelevant to, to the point of this recording. However, verse 12, things get heated. So it says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, quote, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So you see, the interpretation that I gave earlier about the phrase, he has made himself the son of God, which then in verse 8 troubles Pilate and makes him afraid, is now being you know explicated. It says, if you release him, you are not Caesar's friend, which is they're playing with the fear of Pilate. And everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So they're basically telling Pilate what he already knows. Now, Pilate basically says, shall I crucify your king? So he's kind of, he's trying to throw it back on them. It's your king. You, you are the, the people who are upset at Rome, right? The very idea of them expecting the Messiah is because they want to do away with the oppression of Rome, the Roman oppression. And so Pilate says, you know, trying to play along and, and reverse the tables, he says, shall I crucify your king? And now something incredible happens. The, the chief priests answer this, quote, we have no king but Caesar. Talk about apostasy. Like, uh, the, the, the weight of that statement needs to be understood. They're basically apostatizing, right? The idea that we have no king but Caesar, like, it's going against everything they believe. So there is a sense in which they're turning away from God, right? Like Yahweh. And so, and, and that's why this rejection of Jesus is a rejection of the God of Israel, and Caesar is now the god under whom they fall, right? The the idol of Caesar, the the son of God, which is Caesar. So this is crazy. And so verse 16 ends, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And so now we move into the crucifixion. And uh, I'll go ahead and read verse 26, which says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. So we already talked about this passage. I don't think there's more uh, that we can say about it. You know, So Mary is the new woman given as the mother of the beloved disciples, which through their baptism, which is a theme of creation, they have become a new creation, the new children of God in the image, the Adamic image of the Father, right? And so what that means is that Mary is the mother of the new children of God, right? Um, Okay, so moving forward, we see here in verse 34 of John 19, it says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Then it says in verse 36 and 37, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. Okay, so Jesus is now going to be buried. But before we move on to the burial, I find it interesting that 
Jesus' side is opened while he's asleep, right, while he's dead, and out of it comes the blood and the water, which we saw water is emblematic of baptism, and blood, according to Leviticus 17.11, is the life of the sacrificial animal. Now, Jesus is the sacrificial victim here, and the life is coming out of his death, like Eve is coming out of the sleep of Adam, and then the woman is created from the man. Therefore, the church is created from Jesus. So the church as well as the new Eve, the new woman, the new bride. And so again, we're dealing with these archetypal images, but not just archetypal images, but really spiritual realities. So the fact that Jesus gives the beloved disciple to Mary and Mary to the beloved disciple, as well as his death and out of his side coming the church, all these things are together in this same location, same area. And John, the spiritual John, the one who never writes anything without any kind of spiritual purpose behind it, right, is portraying a picture of the new bride of Christ, right, who is being born from the new Adam and the new Eve, like we saw in Genesis 4.1, where a new human comes forth from Adam and Eve. It says in Genesis 4.1, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And so here we kind of begin to see the mystical spousal relationship between Jesus and his mother, Mary. And so what we have here is that these are the labor pains of the woman in Revelation 12, who the rest of her offspring are those who follow the commandments of the child with the rod of iron. And so it's all connecting as the mystery of the new creation, or the new Adam and the new Eve, and the church as the new creation, right? The offspring of the new Adam and the new Eve. Now, th does this mean somehow that like Mary is uh, a goddess? Like, no, that just doesn't follow. Does it mean maybe that Mary is redeeming us and therefore like taken away from Christ's redeeming work? And so therefore like Christ needed Mary to do it, uh, that his work is insufficient? No, not at all. Well, you know, Christ is the, it's like the seed from um, Genesis 3.15, the serpent is vanquished through the seed of the woman. Uh, but there's a sense in which you can say the woman vanquishes the serpent through her seed, which is exactly what the text does say, that there will be enmity between the woman and the serpent, right? And, that, and then it says enmity between her seed and his seed. So Revelation 12 talks about the enmity between the Christians and and the spawn of Satan, right? Those who persecute the Christians. So, really, this is just reading Scripture and interpreting it in light of the clues given to us by John and uh, his using of Genesis as the reference point. Uh, but again, remember, we're talking about the blueprint of the shadows. And so, what does that mean? That means that Christ is the blueprint of humans, right, in a certain sense. He's the blueprint of Adam, right? If he's the new Adam, then the old Adam was merely a shadow of Christ. And also that means that if the old Adam disobeyed, then the new Adam 
obeys, right? And so in that case, then if Mary is the blueprint of Eve, then Eve is merely a shadow of Mary, and her disobedience, right, is uh, uh, the opposite of that, is the obedience of Mary. And her obedience, uh, which we'll have to look at in next recording, is seen in Luke chapter 1 with the story of the um, Annunciation. So that'll be it for this section. Thank you. Thank you.